Welcome to the Religica podcast at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University, where we explore core themes around the values that shape our lives each day. This is Michael Reed Trice, director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Steen Halling, who is Professor Emeritus at the Department of Psychology at Seattle University. Thank you so much, Steen, for joining us today for this conversation. My pleasure. I want the listener to know some of the things about Professor Halling as we move into our conversation today, which is fundamentally about how we understand the nature of forgiveness. That's how I would coin it. But I think Steen may say other things about it first. But first, some things about his biography I think you'll find very interesting. Professor Halling is a licensed psychologist. He was a professor of psychology, continues, emeritus. He's taught at Seattle University since 1976. He taught in the undergraduate program, courses such as Introduction to Counseling, Psychology of Forgiveness, Abnormal Psychology, and Qualitative Research Methods, to name a few. And his research and publications have focused on topics such as, and listen to this, Psychology of Forgiveness, Phenomenological Study of Psychopathology, Psychology of Hopelessness, Imagine how relevant that is today and interpersonal relations. There's more to say, but what we want to talk about at the moment is a book that's coming out shortly. The working title is, it may be the precise title, it's not far Mm -hmm. until it's here. When is the book coming out? End of summer, we hope. End of summer. So this is coming out very soon. The title is The Lived Experience of Forgiveness, Phenomenological and Psychological Perspectives. We're going to talk about what phenomenology really means. And we're going to discuss in particular Chapter 5, Forgiving and Transcendence, on the importance of phenomenological inquiry. So if we begin just with phenomenology, Steve, I was thinking recently – I was reading an article about the King's Highway. For you who are listening, it's that old road goes back to 8th century BCE between Jordan and and Jerusalem, and there's highways and byways in between. It's old. It's kind of moves and serpentines and segues its way between cultures and and histories. And in order to move from one place to the next, you have to experience so much of the culture that was there. You have to feel the ground underneath your feet. You have to encounter the narratives of the lives of those who've been there before. And in some cases, you can look over to the left or right and you can see the flagstones from the Roman Empire period when those were placed there. And in fact, you are surrounded by the artifacts of the narratives and stories of lives of all of those who have walked that place. When you say phenomenology... I think of something like total encounter when mm-hmm. I hear you talking about that in this chapter. Can you help me and the reader to understand what you mean by phenomenology as you're talking about it in this chapter? Well, you're right. It is about the practice of slowing down and really paying careful attention. And in that process, see things that are new, see things and experiences that contradict your ready assumptions about this, that, the other thing. One of my favorite sayings about phenomenologists is a phenomenologist is somebody who's not in no great hurry. Hmm. And lingering, spending time is really important in that process. And it's not just that it takes more time, it's that it's time where you're focused on what you're engaged in. So the time itself by watch time may not be necessarily so long, 
but the level of engagement is really important and really critical. And it's encounter with other people's experience and involves also reflection on your own experience and having a dialogue between the two, which will lead you to some place that you did not really fully anticipate at the outset. So you're helping me. That makes a lot of sense when I think about the culture we live in where we don't have, we almost have an allergy to slowing down, to mm -hmm. taking an opportunity to really right. reflect. Right. I imagine in many ways you might agree that it's not conducive to healthy relationships. Right. In a time where we have difficulty, we see divorce rates are higher, for example. We know people are hurting out there. The right. relationships get dissolved, friendships, et cetera. Right. Is that the first lesson, do you think, in all of this in terms of encounter and phenomenology that we need to take time to make sure we are having a real experience in the world? To be really fully attentive, that process itself is, in some sense, not necessarily clinically, but in some sense, healing both for yourself and the other person. That's part of why I enjoyed this years of doing phenomenological research in a group context. So we met as a group, we focused initially on forgiveness, forgiving the other. And there was a quality of presence among us and presence to what we we're studying that was in contrast to most of what went on for us outside of that room where we met weekly. You know, living in a university setting that's maybe less frantic than a lot of other places, but even there, there's a certain push to get things done and you're tied to the clock when the class is over. In our room, spending time together, there was not that preoccupation and the world sort of fell away as we focused on whatever it was we were studying, be it, in this case, forgiveness, another case, hopelessness or envy. And this is all in the book that we're talking about. Yes, but the method is described in the book. The topic of envy does not really come up, but that was one of the topics we also explored more recently. And the colleagues that you're talking about that were in the room, these are friends, these are colleagues, not all psychologists. I was make a joke and say there are some of them are like normal people. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, no, there was uh, typically, it was my late colleague, Jan Rowe, who was also a member of the psychology department and the graduate program. She and I worked together and the other people in the room were graduate students. So they were master's level graduate students. Occasionally somebody had graduated from a master's program. So that was a group six people, in one case, eight people, it varied. So that was quite a wonderful process. And then later after Jen Rhodes' death, I worked with my colleague in interdisciplinary studies who graduated from a program, Jen Schultz. She and I worked together again also with a group of students. So when did this project begin? If we step back a moment, was this a study course through the pandemic or before? The forgiveness? Mm -hmm. Oh, actually, very early on, we started our first study in the fall of 1984. Okay. So this is a long time A long study. time ago. Yeah. We did our first presentation in Edmonton, Alberta, of all places, at a conference in May of 85. And then over the years, we had a number of publications. We subsequently did a study on forgiving oneself, which is very hard to get at hard for people to even think or describe it. And then the subsequent studies on hopelessness, et cetera, came in subsequent years. 
So if we move then to just this chapter five, if we just focus on this for a moment on forgiveness and think about the 39-year experience that you're describing, mm-hmm. I'd like to read a quote that you, that you attribute in your particular chapter from H.R. McIntosh, who argued that, as you note, it is a subject, forgiveness, regarding which, except on the basis of experience, we should find it barely possible to say anything. Is that true over 39 years? And how would you qualify that? Well, I think it is exactly true. And it's this man, McIntosh, was a theologian. So I think it's particularly noteworthy he said that. Because in theology and psychology and philosophy, there's a lot of theories about forgiveness, a lot of assumptions about it. Until recently, most of them not really been examined very closely in the terms of what actually happens in people's lives. So the experience, forgiveness happens in the world regardless of whatever other people say about it, theologians, psychologists, it has a kind of certain character of its own. And when you study it, it gives you a basis for evaluating the actually fairly enormous psychological literature on forgiveness, most of which is quantitative in nature. Hmm. Nothing wrong with being quantitative. But unless you kind of describe the experience in some detail and get into it from people's point of view, people who are participating in the process, you're likely to be speculating, and that can be misleading or actually harmful. I mean, one of the things about the notion of forgiveness has been harmful is the idea that it's something you do. And I want to get into that with you. Before we do, let me ask you about this first point about quantitative. I mean... Sure, we can add all the ones and zeros as you're identifying, but the qualitative experience, and what do we, phenomenologically speaking, the encounter, let's say, of moral injury in your studies, when people are hurt, when they feel betrayed in a relationship, or when they feel like they've been sabotaged, or the small to the large hurts, the human experience. I mean, there's a long gulf between my pain and the forgiveness on the other side of that chasm. Absolutely. How do you describe that? Well, the truth is, People do not always get to the point of forgiveness. So that's the first thing. It's, in many cases, quite understandable that they do not. But I think the first step is having some kind of recognition of the extent of the injury. In other words, the injury may be very specific. I don't get a promotion that I really think I'm highly qualified for and some my supervisor decided not to support me. So that is very painful. It's very deep injury. And I, in that moment, see my supervisor as a kind of quasi-demonic person or something like that, see the person very negatively and one-dimensionally. And what I may not come to terms with for quite some time is the fact that it doesn't just affect me in that immediate situation. But it shakes my confidence in my judgment of other people. I thought I could trust my supervisor. I thought, by and large, if I worked hard, I could get ahead. I thought there was basic justice in my organization, be it company, a university, a church. So there's all of that. And then over time, there's kind of maybe a stepping back from the amount of anger and even hatred or thoughts of revenge that are there as a way of lifting oneself up in a sense, giving oneself a new focus. We tend to get tired of being angry and we tend to feel badly about ourselves with all these thoughts of revenge. They are ordinary, understandable reactions. Then you may get to the point that you start to step back a bit and say, okay, what was going on in my supervisor's mind? But did he really intend to hurt me? 
Well, did he have a bad day? Were the factors behind the scene that led him to say no, even though he wanted to say yes? And then other people around me may be really instrumental in my moving forward and healing, supporting me, affirming how hurtful it was, maybe gently nudging me towards finding a future that's not tied to that particular promotion, maybe helping me to feel that I'm really an okay person in spite of feeling put down in that situation. There may be occasion when I run upon my supervisor in a context that allows me to see him differently. We may both show up at a funeral, for example, of a beloved colleague or a member of our community. And I see him now not as my supervisor, but as a man who, somewhat to my surprise, is in very deep grief. And I see this person now as a fellow human being, rather than just the person who injured me. And I'm with him, not just, just the person who's injured, but as somebody who suffers alongside of him. So I'm giving a particular situation that could stand for a whole multitude of situations where people open up because of experiences they've had with the other person. Now, in this case, it's not that the other person apologizes. The person's apology may be important if it's done sincerely because it communicates to me that the other person is mindful of me and the hurt I've experienced, and they have, in a sense, our person of conscience. They may say something like, well, I'm really sorry that happened. There were factors that I really can't talk about that led me to make this decision, and I regret the effect that on you. So that may not bring you to forgiveness, but it breaks you out of that sort of somewhat swunken worldview where this particular person is the devil in your life, so to speak, to use graphic language. I want the listener to make sure you're also hearing, as Steen, as Dr. Holling is speaking, that in terms of how I understand what you've mentioned around phenomenology, that what's being described here is it seems almost the arrival or the opening of a doorway rather than some form of intellectual consent. These are things that are kind of arriving in consciousness, a recognition right. of possibility on the landscape of my being, really, yes. that there's an option for me, but it's not so much intellectualized as it is experienced as it's happening, like the humanizing of the other, the gradual kind of ebbing and rising of empathy or maybe proto-empathy, but the sense that somehow my anger can't be the end station without becoming some form of chronic condition. Yeah. Well, even an illness. Even illness, that's right. It, it's chronic anger and hatred. It's not good for your health. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a process of experiences. I mean, you can go and read a book on forgiveness and that may be somewhat helpful, but that doesn't give you to forgiveness. You may hear a sermon on the importance of forgiveness. That may just remind you how inadequate you are because you don't know how to find forgiveness, even though the person on the pulpit tells you you ought to forgive because God forgive you. So it is really a series of experiences. And the forgiveness part of it, the moment I sort of break through the opening of the door is often comes as a surprise. Unexpectedly, you said, oh, I don't feel that anger anymore. I feel like the world is open up. Sometimes this opening up experience is distinctly religious or spiritual. Sometimes it's just more psychological in this sense of this huge burden and this bitterness falls away. How do you account for that? I mean, what you're describing is on the one hand subjective, and yet there are patterns to this. Right, there are patterns that are common among people. And I think that, first of all, the notion of transcendence, which I think is core to our existence, we keep moving forward, 
or we work hard not to move forward, but our nature is to be open to that which is around us. So transcendence insofar as I'm me, I am if I'm going to be in relationship with myself, with the world, with other human beings, I somehow have to transcend my limited perspectives, even of myself. Exactly. Transcending toward the new me arriving, if I can put it that way. Is That's that right. That's right. And we don't necessarily like it. And it's not necessarily even something we will. It's not so much something we will. That's something that keeps happening. And sometimes when you transcend yourself, you realize you've done something that's against your own self ideal, and you deny you did it. So you can pull back from that which you come to see. But the whole notion of transcendence is kind of gives us hope because it moves you in from being locked into the past to having some freedom and look toward the future. So that's part of our nature given existence that, I mean, I think the social sciences have trouble with that. Even though it's something that all of us know about at some level, we are surprised, we are uplifted. Sometimes we are demoralized by things that happen that we did not expect. Is it fair to say then that in some ways, different ways of looking at this, in some ways, if I'm always self-transcending, I'm growing, I'm evolving. Right. We talk about this in, right. in kind of nomenclature today, that forgiveness is the gift I'm giving to myself in terms of new perspective that does things like lower blood pressure. It creates the possibility for new relationships or the horizon of healing and broken relationships, perhaps. Let me ask you a question, though, because in this chapter, you reference a story about Valerie Fortenay right. and her access to forgiveness in right. light of her narrative. Could you bring that story to the reader? And then, sure. and then the question yeah. of, you know, well, how does apology work in light of forgiveness. Right. So Valerie Fortney is a Canadian journalist. Her sister, and I think they live in the Midwest in Canada, her sister is killed by a drunk driver. And Valerie, understandably, is enraged because the drunk driver not only was reckless, but denies responsibility for the event and even at some point seems to lie about it. She's enraged. She is caught up in a self-destructive pattern of drinking and sleep, not sleeping and isolating herself. Gradually over time, she moves a little bit away from the rage and the anger and is sort of exhausted by it. She moves towards more sense of grief. Now, eventually, she runs into the man who killed her sister, runs into him in the courthouse. She walks up to him and says, you know, one thing I cannot really understand or accept is that you don't seem to be sorry at all at what you did. What happens is the man, he acts as if you punched him in the stomach. He starts crying and saying and sobbing and saying, oh, but I really, I am so terribly sorry. I am so terribly sorry. So that, in a sense, is an expression of his regret. It's an apology without using the word clearly, but it shows him in his humanity to her. And since she feels compassion towards him. She almost feels like hugging him, but does not do that. But she talks about her sister and what her sister meant to her. So that's very powerful. And you, you, I would say, in a sense, it's maybe forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves at some level. It would be equally, I think, accurate phenomenologically or descriptively say it's a gift that's given to us. And that's why a number of people we interviewed used the word grace, not just quote people who are religious, but people used the word grace or gift to describe what forgiveness meant to them. In some cases, that meant recovering also relationship with the other person. In some cases, not because the other person was sort of out of your life, but a gift and a surprise and something which gives you a new openness. It's like the sun comes out, so to speak. I'd like to 
ask you about an image and see if this does any justice to the beautiful words you just employed. In the chapter, you mentioned the philosopher Martin Heidegger. And, yes. and for the listener, if you know Martin Heidegger or also the theologian Karl Rahner, these are the two thinkers who've done a tremendous amount of work on how we understand the nature of, of the human being, of human freedom and relationality. And, and Heidegger has a, a series in Building Dwelling Thinking where he talks about what it means to build a bridge between things. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about how empathy might be like that, however unintentional. In some ways, right. what you're describing doesn't have – it's somewhat unconscious as it's happening. Yes. And yet, it's just absolutely necessary to a sinewed humanity. We have to be connected with one another. And I wonder if grace is like that, this sense of the bridge built unwittingly and then that revelation or epiphany when you realize healing is taking place or you have options. Right. Not just connected to myself, but in the moment of, as you just described, the unspoken apology. Right. Someone just feels massive regret. Yeah. Somehow I'm opened to them too. Yes. What uh, is that experience like? And I think that the bridge metaphor is really viable. I think it's, in some sense, it's also like a door opening. A door opening, there was a barrier between you and I, and the door opens. And you're stepping into this new space of mutuality where you experience mutuality. And you see the other person in a three-dimensional way, and you're touched by that. You may or may not want to continue a relationship with the person, if it's your former spouse or whatever, but you see humanity of the other person. And it, it frees you from the preoccupation with the hurt, the injury, and the other person. You can kind of from there on move on with your life. And so there is a quality, I don't know if Valerie Ford knew what he used it, but there's a quality, at least for the moment, of intimacy between her and the other, and the person who killed his sister. What do you say to those listeners who, you mentioned divorce or where you have failed friendships and years go by mm -hmm. and that bridge is built, but there may be no receiver on the other end of it. In short, it may be worked out in the individual, but the one who might be the bearer of the message of grace is no longer a party in the relationship. I mean, there are options you can call that person up, but you might actually be presenting or reintroducing more harm than right. good. What does one do with the unrequited hope for healing that may be best left unresolved? So do you mean that it, I'm the injured person or the other person is the injured person? It could be that you're both injured. Right. Yeah, in this case. And maybe that... This is one of the, I guess the colloquialism is let sleeping dogs lie, however kind of crude that is to say. But the sense in which sometimes opening those doors, to use your image, right. may introduce more harm than good. And the other person may have resolved their part of it and moved forward. Right. Yeah, and I'll give you one example of where it was actually not great to reconnect with the other person because the individual in cases, this was a former student who wrote about this. The individual who hurt her didn't even remember the incident. This was 10 years later. And so that aggravated her again. It's not like he said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry to that. It's more like, what happened 10 mm. years ago? I don't remember that. So there it made things in a sense a little worse. She had more to work with now because not only was she hurt, but she was also not taken as a significant person in his life. So I think there's a lot of work that we can do with other people. And one of the stories I got was a beautiful story about a young woman 
who was deeply disillusioned by her father, who betrayed her family by leaving them and so forth, carried this bitterness with her for a long time. And then she met up with a priest at a retreat who carried with them the kind of the good qualities of her father, but was not her father. And that allowed her to connect with what in her relationship to her father she had valued and somehow grieve through the loss of her father. He, he had died some years previous from cancer. So the subsequent relationships and experiences we have can be of, of great value. I'll give you another brief story, very brief, from John Marshall, who was a journalist at the PI. He wrote a book about reconciling with his dead grandfather. And John Marshall was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. His grandfather was a general and a military historian. His grandfather disowned him and became a conscientious objector. And so John Marshall, for other reasons, went on this journey to research his father's background and to find out if he actually was a good historian or made up some of the data. In the process, he met multiple people who knew his grandfather from multiple angles. And somewhere at the end, after the three-month journey road trip, he recognized that he had given his grandfather because he'd come to see him from other angles. One of the most compelling was coming across a letter uh, his grandfather had written to his first wife before they were married, a love letter. And that was so moving. So he saw his father, not as his grandfather, not as a harsh authoritarian person, but also somebody who really loved somebody else and was deeply hurt when his first wife died. There's that theme in these examples for the listener, the sense of humanizing one another that happens in these narratives. What is the relationship for you in your writing over these years? You've mentioned almost 40 years of study, years before that of thinking about these right. themes. What's the relationship between this need to humanize, and even a hunger, it's an existential hunger, it's essential for our lives, and the nature of freedom? that's so important for our our humanity. I mean, I think what you're talking about and asking this question around grace or the gift uh -huh. fundamentally is our own self-emancipation from the pain that would otherwise kind of anchor us to really bad places right. that we would not otherwise have a full experience of the world. Right. What right. is that relationship between humanity and freedom that we have to protect? I think Martin Buber, when he talks about the late Jewish philosopher and he writes about the I-thou relationship, he's talking about a relationship where we open to each other. In that relationship, we become more truly ourselves. So the freedom that we find is, in fact, in a situation of openness and being affected by another person. And this is a bit of a stretch, and I'm not a theologian, but sort of an idea that to find your soul, you have to lose it. To find your life, you have to lose it. Lose it in a sense you kind of surrender, and surrender is maybe not the right, the right word, but letting go to be present and to be affected by another. In that letting go, you find a new freedom and a new kind of richness to your own life, which is not self-preoccupied or self-conscious. It just sort of comes to you in that moment. And you go away from that moment and you remember it for the rest of your life, perhaps. I want to make sure that the listener also understands that forgiveness, and we've talked a little bit about apology, that there are other things that it's perhaps not. Like, for instance, forgiveness is not identical with 
pardon, or forgiveness is not identical with amnesty, I imagine. How, how would you respond to that, Steen? Well, amnesty is more of a legal term. It's something that a judge can give. And forgiveness has to come from the person who's been injured. It does not mean that you minimized what happened, or do you think it's less wrong than you originally thought. It means more that it doesn't have the same role in your life as it did before. So originally, with the example I used to the man who did not get the promotion because of his supervisor, allegedly, at some point in the future, he, in the process of forgiving what happened, he has sort of moved beyond it. Now, it may be that the fault of the supervisor was not standing up to his supervisor. So he did something wrong, moral lapse. But you no longer carry that with you in your life for, as a basis for cynicism or unhappiness. You hopefully find yourself in another position, maybe particularly important. You recognized in yourself that same sort of vulnerability to pressure that you might also do the wrong thing because somebody put pressure on that. So it's not that the act becomes okay or you pardon it. It's more that it takes on a different place in your life. Well, and perhaps to another point, someone may be listening to this and thinking, okay, well, I have to reach some form of a quick status to forgiveness in order to be a fully liberated human being. But I think it'd be important for them to hear what you might say to the injured people. People get injured and there are reasons to feel injury. And what do we do about that? Are we supposed to rush our way towards some form of forgiveness? We'll hear a lot of people telling us that we should. Just as a lot of people will tell us to get over a loss. If you, you know, we have three months to grieve the beloved, and after that, we're supposed to be doing something else. So rushing it does not work. Acknowledging the, the extent of it, of the injury, and understanding some of the wider implications. Now, perhaps I look at my friends, and I wonder if I can even trust them, having been led down by my supervisor. So giving oneself time and space for... Emotions that we regard as negative, anger, maybe not as much, but even hatred, and flares of temper, and other people's sort of support in that, again, listening and not pushing us can be helpful. What we can do for ourselves, though, is a little different sort. It's indirect. There's an old saying that I would reinterpret a bit, the best revenge is living well. So... Things you do to improve your life are important. Now, some people may think, well, if I improve my life, then I'm getting over this without the other person apologizing. I don't want to do that. Okay, but do you want to live your rest of your life not moving forward as a punishment of the person who hurt you who is maybe moved on with their life? So that's one of the risks of getting stuck in, I'm the victim. I'm not going to step out on that role until somebody else repents of what they did. That can be a problem. One of the things I'm mindful of is what you're describing both qualitatively in human beings, but also in work dynamics where we see systems and work practices. The listener may have heard the phrase, you know, vicious cycle or those kinds of eddies where you have those feedback loops of injury that aren't acknowledged as you're identifying in systems and that gets kind of baked into the right. culture of a workspace, like the right. culture of a personality. 
And suddenly that reinforced memory that's unable to liberate itself becomes the new cultural norm where a feeling of dissatisfaction or aggravation is the starting point for a lot of people. Right. And they wonder how they got there. Maybe that's the question I would have. What happens for those in injury who may turn around and say, how did I get to this space? What do I do? Why am I so angry? Why am I so hurt? Well, one of the, the things is to look around and look at all of the factors that play into that and that reinforce that anger. And ideally, if you're caught up in a cycle, in a, say, a work situation, it may help to hear what others have to say because maybe part of your hurt and your anger is a common response to the situation. Maybe a situation, industrial situation or, or work situation emphasizes competition a lot but does not really recognize how it can also be destructive. Maybe the situation stops you from being promoted, but doesn't give you any good feedback as to how you might get promoted the next time around. Or maybe it seems as if the people who run the business or the institution are not really aware of what's going on with you and others. I mean, it's not that they have to become therapists, but some honest recognition may be really important. And certainly having somebody outside of a situation to talk to, to give an independent assessment, and to help one to put one's supposedly very private story into a larger context. And that may be helpful. I hear us going back to the beginning. We talked about phenomenology, and mm-hmm. I asked you about the nature of encounter. And I had mentioned at the moment, you know, stay on the road, stay connected, recognize the path you're on. I so appreciate your language on encounter. As we're leaving this conversation and have the listener in mind, what would you like them to leave with in terms of encountering their own lives and staying authentic to themselves? What is the role of patience in regard to one's own situation? Because we readily become impatient and want to be somewhere we're not. And the process forward has sort of got an organic quality to it, so patience with ourselves. The other is finding people in our lives who can be witness to what we experience, who may not necessarily even have to listen to what we say, but at least will walk along with us as we go through pain and distress. And also to be reminded, as one feels unappreciated, even something as supposedly trite as making a list of the people who do appreciate you. You can be so focused on injury, which is very real, that you overlook that which is not a matter of injury in your life. The mother who loved you, the uncle who gave you a hand, your next door neighbor who helped you get up when you fell on the ice and broke your leg, the ambulance driver who showed empathy for your pain. So those things are really important. And again, it's not look on the bright side, it's look at the dark side But don't forget, overlook the bright side, because it's also there someplace. Even if you had a grim life, and one of the person I worked with for many years, she had really a tough life. But one of the things that came back to her as we talked was the memory of her grandmother's kitchen, a safe place for her, the aroma of baked bread. That was sort of like a positive real positive dimension in her life, not something she made up, something she had experienced that helped her. She moved forward and found a little more light in her life. 
the lived experience of forgiveness, phenomenological and psychological perspectives. Go and pick up the book. Thank you so much, Steen Holling, for your, Professor Steen Holling, for your time today in this conversation. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening to the Religica.org podcast at Seattle University. For updates on educational events, resources, or opportunities, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Religica or visit our website at seattleu.edu forward slash the center.